I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club podcast coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about Amazon cancelling their plans for HQ2 in New York, YouTube's algorithm problem, and we're going to pitch the companies that we believe will become 10-baggers over the next few years. So, with me here today is Rory and Maeve. Hello. Hello. No Emma today. No Emma today. This might be a a very short podcast. (laughs) Get away with whatever we want to say. So, first of all, I want to uh, to kick off with some of the most recent news stories from the past two weeks. And I think uh, we have to talk about Amazon first. So as you all probably know, last week, Amazon cancelled its plans to open its expansive new corporate campus in Long Island City, New York. The company had initially announced plans to open this 4 million square foot site last November in tandem with another headquarter in Crystal City in Virginia, I think it's called. Yeah, but but last week, after facing unexpected backlash from a lot of lawmakers, activists, union leaders and locals over the plans, the tech giant suddenly announced that they were pulling the plug on it. Um, a lot of the criticism came about the nearly $3 billion in incentives Amazon was getting for opening the site in um, Long Island City. Just a quick breakdown of incentives, guys. A lot of numbers coming at you here, so try to pay attention. Uh, so... Amazon would receive almost $900 million in the city's relocation and employment assistance program, nearly $400 million in the industrial and commercial abatement program. And then in addition to this, they would get $505 million in a capital grant and $1.2 billion in Excelsior job program credits if the job creation goals they promised uh, were met. So that would have totaled about $3 billion and... That would have worked out at about $48,000 per job Amazon was going to provide. They were getting in subsidies. So a lot of money. Um, but then on the flip side of that, according to the state of New York, Amazon would have generated $27.5 billion in state and city revenue over the next 25 years had they opened this site. Um, this was predicated on the assumption that Amazon would have created 25,000 jobs over the next decade uh, with 40,000 overall on an average salary of $150,000. And then there was obviously construction jobs and other indirect jobs linked to that too. So, you know, it's kind of very two sides of the coin on this. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a big a big turn, turnaround for Amazon. I think just optically it looks terrible. Yeah. Um, I think the whole thing, the whole uh, Willy Wonka-esque golden ticket contest for where they were going to get their HQ2, whatever that means, was just... A bit silly to begin with. Um, it was a little embarrassing, wasn't it, for some cities? Well, it's just gonna like it's never gonna go end well when people are like the city is gonna give the richest man in the world, who runs the most valuable company in the world, three billion dollars. You know, <laughs> yeah. like that's just never gonna sit well with people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the whole like it. The thing is, I think it was just a bit of a farce the entire thing because like the idea that Amazon are gonna like what pull out of New York completely, not be in New York, they're gonna be building yeah. in, in New York, in New Jersey, and all those surrounding areas because they're expanding rapidly. And this idea that it was like just because it was the HQ two um, 
that means that they get all these tax incentives and, and you know, uh, a helipad that especially built for Jeff Bezos to yeah. fly in for. Like, it's just ridiculous. There's a lot um, of talk about that helipad. <laughs> I think we talked about it the last time or maybe two podcasts, podcasts ago. ago and, yeah. You know, I, I think I was given out about it and... Um, Emmett fairly pointed out that Bezos was not going to hop on the subway, you know. So <laughs> that like, lo- loads of CEOs of banks and major corporations just you know have a private car drive them to their headquarters. Yeah, yeah I, I still I still maintain that it's a little over the top, Bezos. Um, but yeah, my reaction first of all was that it was huge news, and then ne- well now I'm kind of more where Rory just outlined, which is it's all a bit of a game show, really. Yeah. Like, I think they obviously are, you just said this, but they're obviously going to go into New York and maybe HQ2 will be there. It's just in six months they'll announce that it's in a different part of the city. But like HQ2 just, it doesn't even mean anything. You know, it's like, it's not a protected term headquarter. It doesn't mean, you know, like, Mm. it's just going to be, they're going to have offices in New York. Of course they are. Yeah. And they need to have, you know, infrastructure in the biggest metropolis in the world. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this whole thing where it was going to be their HQ2 just sounds silly. And I'll just point out, someone pointed out online, I can't remember where I read this in an, in an article, but you had all these municipalities bidding for this uh, headquarters. Yeah. And all of them were, you know, bending over backwards to try and get this contract. And in the process, they all handed over all their plans for the next 10, 20 years. So Amazon now has all this data for basically every major city in, in America and they're going to like use that for their expansion plans. So it was all just a, all just a data collecting exercise. I mean, like if, if it was, it was both tricky and genius. But um, tinfoil hats on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Amazon actually said very little about the decision, though. The, their their statement pulling out of New York was only three hundred and sixty three words long. They've said nothing since. But very tellingly. I'm just going to read out um, an extract from this statement, which I think is very telling about the the kind of overall climate about Mm -hmm. this decision. While polls show that 70% of New Yorkers support our plans and investment, a number of state and local politicians have made it clear that they oppose our presence and will not work with us to build the type of relationship that are required to go forward with the project we and many other envisioned in Long Island City. So they're really kind of hanging local representatives out to dry in this statement. And there was a big kickback from people like um, the new uh, Democratic representative, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and other kind of more local activists about, you know, what I suppose they feared was essentially the gentrification of, of that Long Island site. Yeah, I mean, like that, you know, she's, um, you know, to the left of many politicians and she's she positions herself as a person of the people. Um, I don't think she had as much a hand in it as uh, kind of the more state senators and, and, yeah. and um, councilmen. Um, but look, that's she's she's not happy with a major corporation uh, receiving $3 billion. <laughs> it, she, she, her argument is that if you're the biggest company in the world and you're making uh, billions of dollars in revenue, hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue, you should be giving money back to the community, not taking it out of the community. So, yeah. And, you know, there's going to be problems with uh, rent increases and, you know, yeah. people who live in... Uh, Long Island City or... Um, Probably not, not going to be the people working in this HQ2. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And they're, they're going to be forced out or they're going to be, they're going to see, you know, uh, increased costs of living. Um, the people I really feel for 
are the realtors <laughs> because I think a lot of them uh, started buying property very quickly once uh, once that announcement was made and yeah. they're not going to be making what they thought they were going to be making. <laughs> Sitting on a lot of empty apartments at the moment. Uh, so moving on then, uh, Maeve, so any stories you were looking at over the last two weeks? There is and it's not good news, I'm sorry. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, it's not a light news topic. Today I'm going to talk about um, some governance issues that YouTube has been facing as a platform recently. Okay. So I, I think we've talked about this internally in the office before. Sometimes you can end up in a very weird place uh, yeah. in YouTube. I know I end up there sometimes and I can't remember how I got there. YouTube hole. A YouTube hole, exactly. Um, but shout out to my dad who sent me a video this week. It's a TED Talk um, by a guy called James Bridal. He is a British artist and writer. And um, the TED Talk is about the nightmares of YouTube for kids. Okay. And there is a number of kind of dark strands when it comes to kids consuming YouTube. And the one I'm going to talk about today is the really weird one, which is that kids are obsessed with these surprise egg videos. Any parents listening will probably know what I mean. It's the uh, concept of a kinder egg. So you unbox the egg and there's some kind of lovely little toy inside. Okay. And apparently what kids do these days is they sit and they watch surprise egg after surprise egg video for possibly hours. Um... And what's happening is because of the algorithms on YouTube and because of the autoplay function and mostly because there's evil people out there generating kind of malicious and explicit content within about a dozen clicks, you can get from a surprise egg video to something horrible. Okay. Um, And in his TED talk, he kind of outlines the effects that this is having on kids. And I'm just going to read a very small excerpt from James Bridal's transcript. So he says that this is what happens when all of these different keywords, all of these different pieces of attention and this desperate generation of content all comes together in a single place. And this stuff really, really does affect small children. Parents have reported their children being traumatised, becoming afraid of the dark, becoming afraid of their favourite cartoon characters. If you take one thing away from this TED talk, it's that if you have small children, keep them the hell away from YouTube pretty definitive statement there. He goes really strong and firm on it and if you watch the TED Talk or if you do your own research into this you'll understand why. So like just to make sure I'm painting the right type of picture this 12th click might get to a video where Peppa Pig is bouncing happily along a street and then in 30 or 60 seconds she's blown to smithereens. So pretty evil stuff. Pretty bad. And it's all to do with well James Bridal's theory and from my reading is the fact that you know some very well known platforms um are hacking the brains of small children to advertise on YouTube for ad revenue. Yeah. And it comes down to that. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And there was some news this week, a number of pieces of news about how people are starting to push back. Um, Rory, I think you mentioned in our preamble to starting to record that you knew of some platforms that pulled away from YouTube. Yeah, I mean, that was that was based on another story, which uh, is slightly related to this, but it's similarly dark anyway, which was yeah. uh, a video by, I think his name was Matt Watson, uh, did you share it with us? It was um, he'd kind of gone through a wormhole, or he'd gone through the recommendation system in YouTube, and found some very explicit content with kids in it, and the algorithm wasn't kind of hiding this. Or, or, or what actually was most disturbing was YouTube knew about this because they were disabling comments on a lot of the videos, but they yeah. weren't doing anything else to okay. to hide this content. And it, it ended up with ads from uh, Disney in particular was one of the biggest companies that ended up having a paid for ad on one of these videos okay and uh, so yeah Disney this week have announced they're they're stopping all advertising on YouTube uh, for the moment Uh, I think um, Nestle as well have said they're not going to be advertising on them for a while and yeah it's just uh, you know it's another signal that 
any site that has user-generated content, particularly stuff that's aimed at children or, or minors, has to be so careful, and they're just not. They're well, the vetting, like, so that is, you're right, that's a slightly different issue, but it is the same kind of crux, which is why isn't the vetting and the reporting of this more robust? You know, like, yeah. if there is millions of ad revenue to be generated, would both parties not have... I suppose, a moral responsibility to try and make sure that they're not traumatising or abusing kids. It's kind of just the latest chapter for YouTube, though. You know, mm. like, as, as an arm of the world's biggest advertiser, a.k.a. Google, like, it's this isn't the first time they've gotten in trouble for having, you know, I think it was maybe a year ago, was it, that a lot of major um, brands pulled pulled their ads from YouTube again because it was fe- featuring next to extremist content, yeah. Yeah. or were, their ads were featuring for extremist content. And it's just, as you said, with a, with a user generated platform like that it's they're not doing a very good job at policing it no they're not I mean look you can see this across any business that relies on user generated content all you need to do is go to the comments section of, a, of any kind of major oh, uh, publica- publication it's the, it's, the, it's the bottom half of the internet oh, it's, it's, it can be awful and we've yeah. seen you know uh, Facebook obviously has this issue Reddit uh, got in trouble a couple of years ago with various kind of subreddits that they were hosting yeah um, and so yeah it's just uh, you're seeing a real lack of kind of corporate responsibility f- on on the part of particularly companies the size of Google yeah. and Facebook yeah. who really should be uh, putting some money aside to protect the platform for the sake of their business long term yeah. as well I mean mm-hmm. like it's not just uh, it's, it's very short term thinking on their part that if they have this kind of content on there, advertisers are going to flee you know Disney is not going to have its, its uh, brands associated with this kind of yeah. stuff yeah yeah, that's it for me. Like when I heard that Peppa Pig was been blown up and that kids were getting nightmares, it affected me. And I had the same thought as you, Rory. Like, should there not be meaningful corporate responsibility there? Money pumped into it, teams formed, and the issue addressed. So, yeah. not a happy news story, but an interesting one. So to end on that bright note, <laughs> uh, we're going to move off on. YouTube, basically, is the <laughs> sorry parents. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, next, we're going to move on to the company we never talk about. Uh, Rory, as Emmett's not here this week, it's your turn. Uh, right. What company do you want to delve a little bit more into today? I'm going to talk about a company that we talk about so little that sometimes I actually forget it's in the showroom. <laughs> <laughs> always on and, the ball here. Yep, always on the ball. Well, it's it's a company that I, we in Ireland definitely don't get a lot of experience of, and that's Lululemon. Okay. Uh, so Lululemon, uh, yoga, uh, apparel manufacturer, uh, it's specialised retail I don't even think we have a store here. I think they have a concession in one of the major department stores, but they don't have a, a dedicated yeah. um, retail store. But yeah, Lululemon is a specialised retailer, a uh, very tough industry, and, you know, uh, selling very expensive, high-quality yoga yeah, gear. About a hundred bucks of leggings. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I went into a store in New York last time I was over, and I saw a very nice grey hoodie, and it was about $140, um, which is expensive for a hoodie. Yeah. But... Uh, in terms of the company, like you would have thought a company that was selling this kind of gear for that kind of price would really have been attacked by the big players like Nike and Under Armour yeah. and Adidas and that would have squeezed them. Um, well, actually, they haven't been successful at all. Lululemon has the best gross margins in the industry. They're up in the mid-50s. Uh, they've got double-digit same-store sales growth since yeah. 2010. And I think what they've been very good at is they didn't fall into the trap that other um, 
different businesses in the industry fell into, which is that they kept really tight controls on their distribution channels. Yeah. So it's nearly all direct to customers. It's yeah. nearly all sold through Lululemon stores or digital. So while Nike and Under Armour and Adidas were all um, trying to recover from third-party bankruptcies in the States last year, all the big sports retailers, Lulu wasn't really affected. Uh, so we added, in, we added all we added Nike, Under Armour, and Lululemon to the app all at the same time. They were the original stocks in the showroom. Uh, Lululemon's up one hundred and seventy-one percent since wow. we added it. Uh, that's against Nike, which is at fifty-three percent, and Under Armour, which is actually down fifty percent. So. At that the moment, the best overall retailer. Oh, I would think so. Yeah, in terms yeah. of like actual retailer, not kind of e-commerce retailer. Yeah. Um, at the moment, it's trading at very high valuation. It's about six times sales versus it's about half of that for Nike and even less of that for Under Armour. Um, but I mean, they have those market leading margins. They've got a really loyal customer base. They've got a really good online presence, especially on kind of Instagram and stuff like that. Maybe yeah. you, you pointed out. Um, I yeah, I have a few people in my life who are you know fit fair play to them and um, they are no female <laughs> well hang on there's a caveat they are female and um, they tend to really want to show the Lululemon uh, clothing that they buy particularly the kind of women's workwear tops they have kind of really intricate straps on the back Yeah, very Instagrammable and I think there's 2.5 million posts with those tops tagged as Lululemon oh. on Insta today yeah, yeah. That that go. might lead into Rory the point you mentioned there about how expensive these clothes are. Like it was, it was Under Armour's one of their big falls over the past few year was, years was the discounting yeah, they allowed on their brand. Yeah. It really destroyed their brand, which they still haven't recovered from in North America. You know, if they're charging 140 bucks for a top, someone posts on Instagram, you know how much they pay for it. Yeah, and that's, mm. a, that's a really good point. You know, there's there's always going to be a business in turning uh, commodities into luxury items. And yeah. You just need to look at someone like uh, Starbucks or Nespresso who did that with coffee, um, Haagen-Dazs who did it with ice cream. You know, yeah. it's uh, making something, turning something into a high-value product but through brand is yeah. um, is, a, is a tough but good way to make money if you do it right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's Lululemon, one of the companies we we never talk about. Never talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, moving on from that, then uh, Rory, you're going to talk again because again, we're okay. going back to one of our most popular segments in the last year, which was I read a book. This is where one of us recommend a book that we read recently that helped us to think a little bit differently about our investing life. Uh, Rory, the book you're going to talk about today, I believe, is also the subject of the most re- recent expert opinion piece in the app. Yeah, if you've read the expert opinion piece, this, you might be uh, tired of hearing about this book or because I've been talking about it a lot recently. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, a, a book I just finished reading recently. It's called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And it's by uh, Annie Duke. And Annie Duke, if anyone doesn't know, she's a World Series of Poker bracelet winner. Yeah. Um, female poker player in a very male-dominated uh, sport. Uh, and she's now a professional speaker and a decision strategist. Okay. And so this book is basically, uh, as the title suggests, she's what she's doing is she's, she's trying to break down how people make decisions and poses some kind of exercises in which to help us make better decisions. Okay. And uh, she starts the book in a really interesting way. She talks about the uh, Super Bowl in 2015 where um, the Seattle Seahawks were down about four points with about 26 seconds left. And everyone in the world who was watching this, me included, thought they were going to just try and run the ball over the one-yard line, which, yeah. would have, which would have won them the game, won them the, the championship. And instead, the coach called a pass play, which got intercepted, and they lost the game. Mm. And it was it's 
been referred to many times as the worst call in football history, the worst okay. call in Super Bowl history. Um, but actually, if you if you look into the call, into the decision the coach made, it was actually a brilliant decision. And, yeah. um, you can read the EOP to find out why it was a brilliant decision. But basically, all the, the stats pointed to that being the best thing he could do. Yeah. Um, but the, it, it's still called the worst decision ever, and the reason she points out it was called the worst decision ever is because it didn't work. And so that's what poker players called resulting. And resulting is when you judge how good a decision was based on the outcome. Okay. Which is a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Because a lot of the times, <laughs> a lot of the times we make really good decisions and bad things end up happening. Yeah. A lot external of, forces. External forces yeah. come into play. And a lot of the time we make really bad decisions and good things happen. Or Is, is that luck? Yeah. So, I mean, like you can, you know, if you wanted to, you could drive straight through a red light. The fact that you don't get hit by a car doesn't make it a bad decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> doesn't yeah. make it a good decision. Sorry. Okay, excuse okay. me. <laughs> uh, so that was one of the first things she points out, and I thought that was really important in terms of an investing point of view, because a lot of the times we can make decisions that might have been good decisions at the time, and we don't end up they don't end up working out, and yeah. we start to question if we made a good decision or a bad decision. Uh, and a lot of the times we can make bad decisions. We can invest, you know, without doing all our research, without doing our due diligence, and we can end up making money. And you know, if we were to use resulting, we would think that was a good decision. We might continue those practices going forward. So mm. I thought that was a very interesting take on things. Um, she also delves into how to make better decisions in terms of truth-seeking. And when she says truth-seeking, she means going out and finding all the facts uh, yeah. and not just the facts you want to hear, you know, confirmation bias and so forth, yeah. facts that you don't want to hear. So uh, the opposite opinion Basically, okay. and which humans are not very good at doing. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> we're really not. And it's it's very hard in the world of investing as well because you find a lot of the time uh, the the arguments aren't exactly high level. Yeah. Um, on the message boards you go on to, it's we're getting it's, back to the comment sections. Yeah, again. exactly. It's it's yeah. it's genuinely you're an idiot for investing in that stock. That's <laughs> that's like the most. And you'll you get. tell them when you're basing that on my that, my outcome, not my. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I won't I won't uh, go too deep into it. I, I think it's a great book. It really opened my eyes to the way people make decisions and the way we evaluate our own decision making abilities. And I, anyone who wants to become a better decision maker, a better investor, I think it's a really good book to pick up. Yeah, it's very interesting because it's such a hard thing to I suppose quantify, like the process and in, in making a decision. It's hard to measure that. Whereas you know the result, if it works out or it doesn't, you can easily measure that. But yeah. it's kind of it's asking you to do a little bit more work. Yeah, and I think where she's coming from in terms of, so she talks a lot about poker uh, in the book, and poker is, anyone who plays poker knows that in an average game, you're going to be able to make hundreds of decisions very quickly, and you yeah. kind of get instant feedback. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that we, we rarely get that in our lives. Yeah. It's, it's, it's rare that you can kind of say one decision led to this outcome. It's usually a lot of different decisions, and a lot of different things have to fall in place for things to work out the way you want to, but... Uh, it's 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 more about kind of what I think she's trying to say is if you build a kind of knowledge base that's based on facts and 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 get into models of trying to figure out all the facts before you make a decision, you're going to make better decisions throughout your life. Emma talked about win resorts in the last episode, and you're talking about poker now. I think all the signs are pointing towards <laughs> <We'll> casino. <laughs> yeah, working holiday. Working holiday. Yeah. Um, does she cover luck and timing? Uh, she talks about luck a lot, okay. but I mean, luck is one of the things she points out is totally outside our control. So, yeah. you know, uh, I think the overarching uh, theme of the book is that if you can make better decisions, you're going to get better luck in the, in, in, in the long run. So do better and kind of you'll feel luckier. Yeah. yeah. Or, or just like if you so if you have a foundation of truth that you base your beliefs and your decision making on, 
you'll tend to get better outcomes. So you're, you're basically trying to stack the odds in your favour. Okay. Yeah, because I think it's an Irish thing, but like one or two decisions in my life that ended up going well for me, I always kind of add, oh, well, look, it was luck and timing, you know, like when yeah. really what I should say is I made the right call there. You yeah, know? you diminish yeah. Your, your responsibility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I remember like when, so a lot of times people ask us based on our results, uh, you know, how much do you attribute this to luck? And we all kind of slink backwards. <laughs> <laughs> no one really wants to give the number or the quant on that, it do they? It was all our skill. It was yeah. all our the skill. Homer Sim- <laughs> the Homer Simpson gift of him going back yeah, in there. Exactly. <laughs> so that was, um, I read a book, and that book again, Rory, is? Uh, it's called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts uh, by Annie Duke. Yeah, and that expert opinion piece is live in the My Wall Street app at the moment. Um, we're going to move on to the last part now, and Maeve, I'm going to let you take it from here. Okay, we are moving into the elevator pitch. This week it is going to be James and Rory pitching and I'll remind you that an elevator ride takes between 30 and 60 <laughs> seconds depending on what part of the world you're in. Unless you're Emmett Savage. Yeah. Uh, Our fearless ha- leader isn't here. He takes very long elevator rides. Well, look, if, if, if the content is interesting, I'll stay in the lift. But um, OK, and I think the theme this week is the stock that you guys both believe has the potential to be a 10-bagger at some yeah. stage in the future. Yeah. I love this. I love when we do these because it actually makes it really does make you focus on uh, a lot of things because not many companies are going to turn out to be 10 baggers so yeah. you really do need to narrow your perimeters when you're searching for them so okay yeah I'm going to go first because first? this is my first time doing an elevator pitch let's do it um, so the company I've picked is Teladoc so Teladoc is a telemedicine company that uses telephone and video conferencing technology to provide on-demand remote medical care via mobile devices. That's their description, but the company, I think, is really interested and really excited about it. So like most of the companies in our showroom, it was beaten down towards the end of last year. But even in in spite of this, it's still returned an impressive 95% since we added it to my Wall Street a little over a year ago. It's only valued at $5 billion, and I think it's a long road left to run. It has huge clients, including ExxonMobil, Google, Microsoft, Coca-Cola, Facebook, about 40% of Fortune 500 companies, in fact. And it already has a huge head start in competitors with its footprint extending from Shanghai to Dubai to Dallas. Uh, But what we're really seeing in relation to Teladoc is the gradual customer adoption of the platform. Um, While it it has all these large corporate clients, its gradual adoption across the actual employees of these clients will really help the company. Uh, In its last earnings call, paid membership increased by 18% year on year to hit 22.6 million. Total visits grew 110% from the year before to hit 641,000. Um, as long-term investors, we should always ask, can we imagine a company thriving in 10 years? Given current inefficiencies in global healthcare system, plus the increasing move of services to mobile and integrated providers, I can say with near certainty that Teladoc will have a major role in the future. It's one of the biggest holdings in my portfolio, and I'm going to add more soon. Okay. Finn. I love Teladoc. Yeah. It's one of, my, it's one of the ones I was kind of looking at for this. Yeah, it's just, it's just making something that will never go away, which is, you know, getting access to healthcare it's just making it so easy you know you don't have to take a day off work to Absolutely. go to the doctor yeah yeah good one me that was a good pitch you seem rattled Rory yeah I know what's going to happen here <laughs> we're in, we're coming back down in the lift now so <laughs> be mindful <laughs> uh, okay uh, uh, the company I'm going to pitch is a really recent addition to your showroom it's called Eventbrite mm-hmm. uh, anyone who doesn't know they're kind of like a mini ticket master uh, they kind of focus on events that would be not the same size as Ticketmaster. So you're no. not talking about the big stadium gigs. You're talking about kind of more uh, smaller, 
smaller gigs, smaller um, events organised by not massive corporations, usually kind of small independent uh, event organisers or even just people who want to set up an event. Uh, It's a $2.3 billion business. I think they've established themselves really well in the space. They're targeting a a really underserved customer base. Uh, I think they have a strong brand, uh, definitely in terms of lowering search costs. You know, I worked in... Um, marketing and events for years and, and they're definitely the first name that jumped to mind when you thought of ticketing at that level at that yeah. price point they've got a founder CEO with high insider ownerships actually a married couple who uh, started the business and they were involved in a company a few years ago called Zoom which was acquired by PayPal uh, right before we were going to add it to the showroom unfortunately <laughs> and they've got really strong retention amongst their customer base at 97% in the last quarter so I think going forward you know you're going to see some competition uh, a lot of companies are trying to get into the experience space Airbnb uh, TripAdvisor all kind of pivoting that way but I like Eventbrite very much I've used them as a customer and I thought their uh, system was really seamless I, I know people who've used them as organisers and they really love it and uh, finally, my man Jason Moser is a big fan, so that's yeah. always a good sign when uh, investing in a company. So that's my pitch. Sounds good. Okay, they were good pitches. Decisions up to you, Maeve. Well, this is a funny one because I own both, hey. and they're two of my more preferred stocks in our app. Um, I'm gonna go with Eventbrite, and I'll tell you why. It's because I've used it, and also because I am biased. There is a recent. Um, Masters of Scale with Reid Hoffman and Julia Hertz, who is the current CEO and the yeah. wife of the um, the other founder of Eventbrite, Kevin. Yeah. And I got a really good vibe off her. She's kind of the same modus operandi as me, which is if you don't start with your customer, you're not going to build a billion dollar business. So it's Eventbrite for Eventbrite. me. Yeah. Giles. But that was an enjoyable um, episode. <laughs> I want a second opinion. No, Giles, we don't have a tiebreaker. <laughs> okay, Giles, go on, vote there. Me, uh, give me, give us a circle for Rory and a Thumbs up for James. We actually can't hear you. Ah, yes. <sighs> Even Stevens. Even Stevens. We'll get him at the pick next week. <laughs> so that's about it from us here at Stock Club this week. And if you've anything that you want us to discuss on the next podcast, make sure to leave a comment or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. As always, there's plenty of new things to check out in the My Wall Street app at the moment too, including that expert opinion piece that Rory talked about earlier. You can actually listen to all the past episodes of the Stock Club podcast in the My Wall Street app too. Simply find it in the featured section of the Focus tab. Thanks for listening in today and please make sure to rate, review and share the podcast if you enjoyed it. From myself, from Rory, from Maeve, see you in two weeks. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com tapiphone tap iPhone.